This episode of the Signal 51 Chronicles is brought to you by Oscars Pub, 6323 Kent Bowie Boulevard. Roxo Media House. A Signal 51 is police code for an investigation, a law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist. My partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. This week on the Signal 51 Chronicles, Pamela Laughlin versus the state of Texas. Was socialite Pamela Laughlin kidnapped on December 16, 1982, as she claimed? Or was she, as police alleged, the mastermind of a conspiracy to kill her estranged husband, John D. Laughlin, the son of an oil man and an air conditioning executive, an executive with considerable assets of his own? Five months after the alleged kidnapping and subsequent discovery of John's body in southwest Parker County, police began making arrests in his death, caused by four 45 caliber gunshot wounds to his back. Laughlin and her hairdresser, Lucky Wright, and perhaps her boyfriend, it's difficult to actually tell, were accused of paying two men, Michael Stephen Vera, age 35, and Ronald Ferry, 29, $500 to abduct and kill John Laughlin. All at, according to Parker County District Attorney Max Smith. Smith initially said he would seek capital murder indictments against Pamela and Wright. The meaning, they would be eligible for the death penalty. A charge that can be as useful as a bargaining chip for prosecutors, particularly in a conspiracy such as this. Vera had given a statement about the slaying, according to police. Jeff Kearney who along with Tom Zachary would ultimately defend Pamela in a years-long process, asserted that the case against Laughlin, against Pamela Laughlin, was weak, adding that he believed that, quote, because of the reward, John's parents had offered $50,000 for information leading to solving the case. As well as the position of the Laughlin family, the district attorney had been pressured into taking some kind of action. Said Max Smith, the DA, he's entitled to his opinion, but I don't have any comment. My job is to follow the letter of the law, and that's what I'm doing. All the hallmarks of an open and shut case, you say? Think again. The first order of business for the defense was a change in venue. We actually, as an aside, Jake, uh, we actually have uh, quite a bit of lawyering in this case. There's a, there's a, I guess there's a reason the case needs three and a half years to resolve, and that's because of lawyers. Typical. Totally typical. But anyway, to that end, we've, we've brought to the magnificent Roxo Media Studios our resident attorney. Notice I didn't say anything about retainer. We don't have that kind of money. But there's no money? <laughs> our resident attorney, Sean Furkey, who guides us <clears throat> on all the paths of litigation. Sean, good afternoon. Great to see you guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here, Sean. Always happy to, to join you guys. You you uh you mentioned before we got on here you, you you're down ten pounds how did you how in the world did you do that over over the 
course of Thanksgiving. I, I, I tell you what, just just stress and chasing kids around, and I don't know. It's it's a tough way to lose weight, but it's working for me. So <laughs> I'm not, not going to change anything. <laughs> well, anyway, the defense spent time on on a motion to move the trial out of Parker County, contending, of course, that the media attention and there was a lot of it made it impossible for Pamela to receive a fair trial in Weatherford, the county seat. And in the end, the defense got its way. The prosecutor, Smith, dropped his objective to a change of venue. District Judge Harry Hopkins, a gentleman in Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet, Harry Hopkins, and his name will be will figure prominently in this case. Hopkins announced that the trial would be held in neighboring Jack County. Downtown Weatherford to Jacksboro, county seat of Jack County is a drive north of about 45 miles. So Sean, let's uh let's let's talk change of venue issues here. Okay. Tell our audience what are some of the reasons that they do seek a change. So a lot of times defense lawyers will file a motion for a change of venue if they feel that their client cannot get a fair and impartial trial in that county. So in this case, uh, Kearney and Zachary felt that because of the publicity, whether it was news articles or things on the television or just people talking around town, residents of Parker County, because they may have heard about this, that they might have some preconceived notion or beliefs that they would be unable to set aside. And obviously to, to, be, to land on a jury, you know, through the jury questionnaire, both sides, the state and the defense will question potential jurors. And the jurors have to, you know, prove to both sides that they can be fair and impartial. And I think the, the lawyer's concern in this case was that because of the publicity, because they had heard about it, that they possibly would not be able to do so. That, so that's really the main, you know, the main reason someone, the defense would file a change of venue is because they feel their client can't get a fair trial. And whether, Parker County in those days is a speck of what it is today. Teeny tiny. So you're also looking at the the, the size of the potential pool of jurors which would have been very small very small and they probably talk about everything at the one of three coffee shops in town i would imagine so every day we had a notable well i the change of venue case i remember most notably anyway is colin davis in 1976 or it must have been 77 when that trial went down which was moved to amarillo and then his subsequent murder for hire charge was moved to Houston like two years later. Did you cover those? We've got a, we've got a comedian on board here. (laughs) I was just, I mean, (laughs) your basis of knowledge is so vast. I figured you had maybe, I don't know. I don't think that's what you meant. Oh, he's got a fast internet connection. Yeah, that's right. Get it research. (laughs) That's right. Uh, (laughs) And another one that still hasn't been ruled on is is the Tatiana Jefferson case. The, well, the Aaron Dean trial is being called. We had a gentleman in here a few months back, Francisco Hernandez, uh, noted attorney that I know Mr. Ferkey is aware of um, that we actually just replayed recently. Yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, in that one you know, look at, look at the world we live in, right? Like, where do you move these to? I mean, the people in this case of Jack County, they have this thing called social media, right? They have a phone in their pocket. I mean, 
I don't know. This seems like an evolving, you know, a, a concept that I don't want to say antiquated, but where do you go? Yeah, I agree. I definitely think in, you know, the day and age of the internet, you know, regardless of whether you're in <clears throat> Tarrant, Parker, Jack County, you know, anybody can have access to this. So, you know, you can make the argument a lot of times or, you know, this day and age, especially your defense lawyers filing motions for change of venue as a stall tactic. I, I think that, you know, that yeah. could come into play. Some gamesmanship, allow them further time for discovery. Yep. Um, you know, there can be all sorts of reasons to do that. And I think, I think uh, as we get into the, to this, uh, to this trial that um, delay tactics will figure prominently. That will become a common theme. In the strategy, um, we, do we in the, in t speaking of th this day and age? Do we see more change of venue motions today, or do we see less for that very reason you're talking about? Or do you, what do you think? I, w I would think there'd be less for that very reason. Yeah, because because I mean, there, there's there, no not that there's less motions filed, but I would think there would be right. significantly less granted by a judge for that reason because I think it's a harder argument for the defense to make that due to publicity because, you know, it's not just, you know, this happened in 80, 82, trial in 83, you know, back then, you know, if you weren't reading it in the Weatherford Gazette or whatever, the Weatherford newspaper, The Democrat. The Democrat, <clears throat> you, you might not have been aware of it. Um, but, you know, nowadays, I think that'd be a much harder, you know, argument to make to a judge. Particularly the, the Dean trial where that's a nationally known event. Definitely, yeah. Well, the judge Hopkins said he would continue to preside over the trial, which is typical or atypical. Will the, ju does the judge usually follow that case, Sean? Or yeah, I think that that is somewhat common. I mean, I think it's is you know up to the the judge, uh, but since he's the one, you know, ruling on the motion, it, I think it's fairly typical for them to to go sit on the bench in, in whatever county it's moved to once that change of venue motion is granted. And I may be wrong, but if, if I remember your conversation with Francisco, uh, it, the, 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 the financial aspect of moving these trials, because you're not just taking the judge, right? I mean, you're taking the entire system with yeah, you. Yeah. So. I think he, I think he did note that. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was an issue in this particular case as well, because again, uh, in part one of this uh, episode of this case, um, I forget. I now I can't remember who it was, but they weren't sure that there was a bond. But there was a bondsman who could handle, yeah, underwriting a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar bond. Yep, that's a different area, but that just tells you the 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 you know the the, the size and scope of Parker County versus an, an urban an urban county. Well, Hopkins went on to say that he's going to preside over the trial, and he and he said that he did not anticipate any further delays, and expects both sides to be ready for the trial on December fifth. That's interesting, compared looking at it from uh, the trial that's supposed to start on December fifth of the year twenty twenty two, the Aaron Dean trial. Well, you're right. Yeah, I'll be damned. It's a weird world we live in. Yeah, small world or something. I'm going to go with both. Well, 
he set the trial date for December 5th, 1983. That's almost a, exactly a year to the day of John Laughlin's murder. Our man, Judge Hopkins, would prove to be no crystal gazer. Zachary, one of uh, Pamela's defense attorneys, said that Jack County meets, quote, meets with the appro our approval fine. And then he added, confirming the what appeared to be the already very adversarial environment of the state versus defense, said, quote, we're somewhat puzzled by the state agreeing at this date to transfer venue to another county, but then we've been puzzled before. Said Max Smith, I withdrew my objection to the defense motion so that we could spend a minimum amount of time on jury selection and get directly into the case. Jury selection in Parker County would have bogged us down. And bogging down was clearly a strategy of the defense from the very first day. Defense attorneys had requested to question potential jurors individually, which could have stretched out jury selection for weeks. Defense attorneys contended that the publicity surrounding the case tainted the Parker County jury pool and that they needed to carefully question each juror who has heard about the case or who says he's heard about the case. The judge had indicated that he would permit individual questioning if the potential juror admitted having prior knowledge of the case, Smith told reporters. The defense had also hired a jury consultant from Houston. Quote, I just decided it would be easier to go to a county other than Parker County and get on with the business of trying the case, Smith said. The team of Kearney and Zachary, Sean, would you call them quite able defense attorneys? Some of the best Fort Worth's ever had. That team suggests that Smith also might be playing it safe because if too many Parker County jury prospects had proved to be biased by pretrial publicity, jury selection would have to be abandoned here and repeated someplace else anyway. And again, back to that point, that would be expensive. Parker County being the mere speck on a map compared to the almost cosmopolitan status it has today as Fort Worth's close neighbor. Parker County was footing this bill. The judge, Hopkins, went on to say that he had no alternative but to transfer the case once the DA withdrew his objection. So in the meantime, Lucky Wright, represented by the recently passed Jim Lane, struck a bargain with prosecutors, agreeing to plead guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and a 15-year prison term in exchange for his promise to help the state. Vera had also agreed to accept a 30-year prison term in exchange for testifying for the state. Vera admitted he was the trigger man. In their plea agreements, the three men said they conspired to kill John Laughlin. Pamela's attorney, meanwhile, believed or at least they said they believed that if Ferry were to testify, he would give evidence favorable to Pamela. Kearney said he believed that Ferry would testify that Laughlin's slaying was Vera's idea and that it was the result of a drug deal that went bad. According to those statements from the three, Wright asked Vera if he would kill John. Vera said in his statement that he shot John after he and Ferry had kidnapped him from Pamela's home in the 4700 block of Briarhaven Road in Fort Worth on December 13th. Pamela had asked her estranged husband to come home to fix a broken door, according to Wright's statement. Earlier in the same day, Wright said in his statement, 
that he gave Vera and Ferry a shotgun and pistol. Three days later, Pamela reported to Fort Worth police that she had been abducted at gunpoint on Hewland Street and held for $10,000 ransom. Her divorce was to have been completed the same day. Kind of just jump in here right quick. Go ahead. If, if, if my ex-missus calls me to fix a door, I'm going to tell her to go kiss my don't, ass. Don't go. Oh, yeah. Don't go. If I had an ex, it's unlikely that she would call me to fix a door. That I can promise you. There are some advantages to being unhandy like myself yes. as well. I, I would never be called on for for any any sort of uh, nope, you know, repairs. Mm-mm. We all have something in common. Yeah. Sorry about that, Jake. All right. So carry the, on with our case here. The prosecution would attempt to prove that Pamela hoped to inherit her husband's estate, valued at five hundred thousand dollars, more than one point five million dollars today. Pamela ordered the death because John owned most of their property, they said, and had a will that would have left her considerable property in the event he died. Moreover, John had created a trust for his wife that would provide her with $20,000 annually. That's more than $60,000 today, if he were to die. Kearney said the main beneficiary of the estate was the couple's eight-year-old son. I think there are some things that are going to come out in this trial that are going to lead to some head scratching, said Zachary. In other words, the defense planned to take the position that those three were so lacking in credibility that the state couldn't prove the case. Each one of the three had received extremely favorable treatment for what they have claimed to have done, Zachary said. On day one of the trial, prosecutors the jury through its motive for murder, depicting Pamela as a desperate woman who hired two drug abusers to kill her husband out of fear that an impending divorce would strip her of her influence. In particular, she dreaded losing family property, including the house on Briarhaven Road, said Assistant DA Dan Carney. Only months after the couple's first divorce in 1980, Pamela had remarried John to overcome a, quote, loss of status and wealth, Carney contended. And this time, he said, she sought to eliminate that danger through her husband's death. Prosecutors also said a friend of Pamela's, Bobby Pierce, introduced her to Wright. Wright later helped Pamela hire two men to kill her husband for $500. Ultimately, she began discussing the killing of her husband with Wright, the prosecutor said. Wright supplied drugs and firearms to the two men, Vera and Ferry. The original slaying plot that Laughlin and Wright masterminded called for Pamela to stage a breakdown in her husband's Ford Bronco on US-80 near the Parker-Tarrant County line, Carney said. She was to call her husband and have him killed when he met her there, Carney said. On December 13, 1982, Vera and Ferry became confused and drove to Fort Worth. The plot was revised when Pamela called her husband at his West Side apartment and asked him to fix a broken slide and asked him to fix a broken sliding door at the Briarhaven house. After John arrived, Vera, armed with a sawed-off shotgun, 
forced him into the vehicle driven by Ferry, Carney said. Vera shot Laughlin four times and dumped his body about five miles southwest of Weatherford, the prosecutor said. Vera and Ferry returned to Fort Worth that night to remove John's truck from his wife's home, and a short time later, the two men stole guns from John's apartment, Carney said. Prosecutors said a friend of Pamela, James Gober, donned a ski mask to pretend to abduct her and demanded a $10,000 ransom from Pamela's parents. Pamela and Gober actually spent the night at the Ramada Inn Central in Fort Worth, Carney said. On the morning of Pamela's, quote, escape from her, quote, captor, Gober fired a single gunshot in the air just as Pamela ran behind an Exxon gas station at South Hewland Street and Bel Air Drive. That concluded the faux abduction, Carney said. Gober pleaded guilty to attempted capital murder and received a nine-year prison sentence. Bobby Pierce, he owned the Exxon station. Interesting. The next day, day three of the trial, a bombshell. Hopkins, the judge, declared a mistrial because of an oversight, and it was a significant oversight. The judge who had moved the trial to Jack County had heard the case in that changed setting without prior authority. Hopkins, who usually presides over the 43rd District Court cases in Parker County, lacked approval from the 8th Administrative Judicial District to transfer the case to the 271st District Court in Jack County. Now, Sean, right quick, tell us about this Administrative Judicial District. So, it appears that, and again, I don't know if this is is common today, um, but it appears that this 8th Administrative Judicial District would have been the ones to give, you know, a judge or the, the court that he presided over the authority to do that. And according to this, because Judge Hopkins did not have the permission or the approval from the 8th Administrative Judicial District, that the, the transfer was improper. So it sounds like it'd be something like the something the judge might get a clearance before he makes the case, before he makes the ruling. Exactly. Or? Yeah. You would think it'd be something he'd have to run by this administrative judicial district before he ruled on the, the motion to change venue. Well, according to accounts of the day, Hopkins was indeed required to obtain permission from district judge, Charles Murray of Fort Worth. He was, Murray was the presiding judge of that eighth administrative district before he could hear cases outside his jurisdiction. According to Murray, he didn't tell me or ask me to make the change. Hopkins declared a mistrial because of his procedural error. The record showed the following. Said Hopkins, let the record reflect that it has come to the attention of the court that there has never been a formal assignment filed with the clerk of this court assigning me to the, two, to the 271st District Court to try this case. And that in the presence of the defendant and the attorneys for the defendant and the state, the court is calling this to the attention of the attorneys. Zachary, quote, Your Honor, at this time we'd ask for a mistrial. Hopkins, I have no alternative but to grant the defendant's motion for mistrial. You understand, Mrs. Laughlin, what the situation is, that what we've done up to now has been without authority and to proceed... You understand, Mrs. Laughlin, what the situation is, that what we've done up to now has been without authority and that to proceed on with this trial would be a nullity 
and that your attorneys are asking to declare that what we've done is a nullity, a mistrial, and that's it. Do you agree with that? Yes, sir, Pamela replied. Hopkins continued, I don't know anything else to do. My apologies. I'm going to apologize to everybody concerned as judge of this court. Max Smith, the DA, no apologies necessary, judge. Hopkins, the responsibility lies with me. Smith said afterward, I don't in any way blame the judge. There are many things he has to do to take care of business at home. Our case will stay the same. I'm just, disappoint I'm just disappointed that we can't complete what we started. That courtroom dialogue would become the source of a legal labyrinth played out over the next year. A new trial was scheduled for January 1984, but proceedings ground to a halt while defense attorneys attempted to show that the mistrial and retrial constituted double jeopardy. Double jeopardy, of course, prohibits the government from prosecuting defendants for the same cr crime twice. Ordinarily, double jeopardy does not occur when defense attorneys request a mistrial, as Laughlin's attorneys did. But if a judge provokes defense attorneys into asking for a mistrial, double jeopardy exists. In other words, defense attorneys claimed in court papers that Hopkins improperly terminated the trial by misrepresenting his error as a judicial one thereby requiring a mistrial. Kearney said it was later learned that Hopkins needed no formal appointment to proceed with the trial. Once Jack County accepted the trial, it had legal jurisdiction, the defense said. The way he represented it to us is that it would have been a waste of time, money, and effort to try the case since the verdict would be null and void because he didn't have jurisdiction, Kearney said. The Second Court of Appeals, in upholding an earlier ruling, said Laughlin's attorneys had not proved that Hopkins solicited the mistrial request. Said Carney, the, the Parker County assistant DA, it, it's ludicrous that the mistrial the defense requested constitutes double jeopardy. They got a mistrial, exactly what they wanted. Now then, we're up here delaying the trial by arguing on this appeal. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals eventually upheld both rulings, meaning the trial could proceed a full year after that original mistrial in Jack County. By this time, Judge Hopkins had voluntarily withdrawn from the case. John Lindsay in the 271st District Court in Jacksboro was the new jurist. However, the case was once again stopped for legal maneuvering. Kearney and Zachary, the defense team, weren't finished yet, or at least by all appearances, taking their case to federal court, seeking the same double jeopardy ruling in the U.S. District Court in Fort Worth. However, Kearney and Zachary eventually decided to drop it and go forward. We're anxious to get this thing going, Zachary said. We've tried the case once before, and we have a feeling she's going to get acquitted. We're ready to go on with the thing. So eight men and four women have been selected from a pool of jurors in Jack County for the second trial. A second trial that had been postponed since February and only to begin in May. Well, there was one more delay, actually. They had Memorial Day to get through. Jake, let's talk about Oscar's Pub for a second. The home base for so many good people on the west side of Fort Worth, the birthplace 
of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Wasn't far from where we're where we're sitting that Jake and I made our vows. Wait, what, 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 what? No, where, where we hold on, where we fashioned the idea of what would become the Signal Fifty One Chronicles, and it's here, Jake, at Oscar's Pub that you can drink the tastiest beverages with the friendliest people. Be nice or go home. That's that's the motto of Oscar's Pub, and that is Oscar's Pub, a true friend to the Signal Fifty One Chronicles. Located at 6323 Camp Bowie. In the prosecution's opening statement, Brock Smith of Jack County, now assisting the Parker County District Attorney's Office, laid out the same motive, but with one other detail. So Brock Smith depicted Pamela as a, quote, bored, unhappy woman who had affairs with two men. Among them, was Bobby Pierce, owner of the Exxon station near the Laughlin's home. Smith told jurors that Pierce introduced Laughlin to Wright, the same lucky Wright who swore in an affidavit that he and Pamela had paid two men $500 to kill John. Quote, soon after she met Wright, she started telling him about how unhappy she was in her marriage, Smith said. The defendant and Wright then began discussing the death of John Laughlin. On the next day, the prosecution called one of its key witnesses to the stand, Vera, who admitted in a sworn statement that he was the trigger man. The defense, once it had its shot at him, began chipping away. In his written statement given to police in April of 1983, Vera said that Wright had threatened to kill him if he did not kill John. But on the stand, Vera said that he had lied to police and that Wright never threatened him. He also told police that he had known Wright for only three or four years. In fact, he said he had known Wright for 15 years. Kearney, the defense attorney, who questioned Vera for several hours, also got a key admission from the witness. He had never once mentioned Pamela's name to detectives when questioned about his role in John's murder. In all, the defense cited 70 different stories Vera had told police and the jury. The star witness was next, Wright. Wright testified that he was to receive $35,000, what would be about $110,000 today, for his role in killing John. Wright told the jury that he and Pamela had twice planned the murder, once in November of 1982 and again in December of 1982. Wright said that in November of 1982, he made a deal with Vera to kill Laughlin. Wright said Vera agreed to abduct and kill John to pay off a debt to Wright. Vera was supposed to have John killed in November while Pamela was on a Colorado ski trip with her family, Wright testified. She wanted it done before the divorce hearing, Wright said. She felt she wasn't going to get certain things in the hearing. She did not want to lose anything in the divorce. Wright said the first attempt failed, and he and Laughlin met again in December of 1982 to again plan the murder. This time, Vera hired Ferry to help. 
Ferry, and I can't remember if we mentioned this earlier, pleaded guilty to conspiring to commit capital murder and was serving a 20-year sentence. Wright said for the second plan, he told Vera to meet the Laughlins at a service station on US-80 near the Parker County line on December 13th. Wright said Pamela had arranged for her husband to meet her at the service station where she had staged a car breakdown. However, Wright said, Vera drove to the wrong location. It's a hell of a hit, man, I tell you. There, there's a couple of... Bumble, bumbling. <laughs> yeah, I, it's amazing. Well, yeah. Pamela, Wright said, called him later that night to tell him Vera never showed up. Wright then testified that he and Pamela agreed she would call John to the Briarhaven house to fix a broken door. Wright said he met Pamela for breakfast the next day and discussed the abduction and killing. Pamela asked Wright if he had killed John. I said, quote, no. She seemed relieved, Wright said. The next day, Wright returned to the stand with more insight. Pamela's quote-unquote abduction was staged, he said. It was her attempt at cover, an alibi for her husband's killing. The kidnapping scheme was her idea, Wright told jurors. She wanted protection. She was trying to cover her tracks. She wanted people to think the same people who killed her husband had kidnapped her. Wright also confirmed what had been reported in media accounts, that Gober, Pamela's friend, wearing a ski mask, quote-unquote, abducted her. And Pamela also had spent the night, her night in, quote-unquote, captivity at the Ramada Inn Central in Fort Worth. I think we all know where that Ramada Inn Central is. I think that's the one on I-30 there off the in East Fort Worth. It's the one that has a perfect view of downtown. Oh, at I thirty and Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you yeah. go. I thirty. I think that's. I think that's Ramada and Central. Yeah. Well, anyway, Kearney countered that it was actually Wright who orchestrated the kidnapping incident to draw attention away from himself and project it onto Pamela. Kearney, of course, doing his job, muddied the waters further, contending that Wright never conspired with Pamela to have her husband killed. Instead, Kearney said. Wright volunteered to have the fourth executive killed, just as he had offered to have another fourth woman's husband killed. What's this about? Well, Wright told jurors that another friend, Tammy Thornton Bruce, had complained to him about problems she was having with her husband, a fellow by the name of Donnie Bruce. This whole thing makes you never want to be married again. Wright testified that he had offered to, quote, take care of him. Kearney said that, Wright only agreed to testify against Pamela because he feared that he would be given the death penalty when he was originally arrested in May 1983. Wright testified that he had also been charged with cocaine possession, unlawfully carrying a weapon, and an add-on marijuana possession. Lucky Wright died in 2009 at age 65. In closing arguments, the prosecutor, Max Smith, said Pamela is, quote, the kind of person who could drop a quarter in a telephone, call her folks, and tell them she's been kidnapped and start a nightmare that's never stopped. Kearney and Zachary, meanwhile, reiterated the content of the conspirator's character. Quote, before you can find Mrs. Laughlin guilty, you have to believe what these witnesses told you, Kearney said. 
claiming in his final stand that Wright made more than $1 million a year in illegal drug deals. His business, the defense attorney went on, requires that you lie, cheat, and scheme every day. He was the kind of man who carried guns. Is that the kind of man you want to believe? Kearney also reminded jurors that Vera had admitted telling a total of more than 70 conflicting stories. Said Zachary, prosecutors can wave around a shotgun, but it doesn't have her fingerprints on it. They can wave motel receipts, but they don't have her name on them. The three-week trial ended with this headline, Deadlocked Jury Terminates Laughlin Retrial. The defense's strategy worked. The trial of Pamela Laughlin versus the state of Texas ended in a mistrial after jurors deadlocked at 8-4 for acquittal. Pamela got off on the charge of murdering her estranged husband, John Laughlin. Said one juror, there was not enough evidence to say that she had anything to do with it. The state didn't prove its case. Hazel Hutto, Pamela's mother, said, we're very upset. We're very shocked. How else can we feel? We expected an acquittal. They had no evidence. Zachary said he too wanted a final verdict, but was pleased that most jurors voted in Laughlin's favor. The jury felt like there was no evidence to convict, convict Mrs. Laughlin, and that is the correct application of the law. You always want to conclude something. Lindsay, the judge, declared a mistrial after the foreman, Steve Martin, twice sent him a note saying jurors could not reach a unanimous decision. The jury had recessed at about 10.30 Thursday without a verdict. Jurors resumed deliberations at 9 the next morning, Friday, and sent a note to the judge shortly before noon saying they were deadlocked. The judge instructed jurors to continue deliberating, but was told again at about 3 p.m. that a verdict could not be reached. Another juror said the first vote at 5 p.m. Thursday was 6-6. The second vote taken on Friday morning was 8-4, acquittal, and it remained that way. Nobody gave an inch, that juror said. We could have deliberated for the next month, and the vote would have come out the same. Smith, Max Smith, the Parker County prosecutor, was admittedly surprised and disappointed by the decision. Said Zachary, I don't think this is over. He was right. This sorry tale wasn't over. Smith of Parker County announced shortly after the verdict that he would retry Pamela. The trial this time would take place in Palo Pinto County. However, on the eve of the trial, it all abruptly ended. Pamela accepted a plea bargain, pleading no contest to the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. Her sentence, three years probation. The deal struck under Judge David Cleveland meant there would be no record of the plea if she didn't find another husband to kill. Oh, I missed. Typo? Typo. (laughs) It happens. In reality, what the plea bargain stipulated was that if she obeyed the terms of her probation for three years, there would not even be any indication that she was ever associated with any crime, much less charged. If she didn't stay out of trouble, she faced two to 20 years. John Denton Laughlin, born in 1947, took four bullets to the back. Pamela was given a timeout. While Pamela was merely, quote, in the system for three years, her conspirators were serving 15, 20, and 30 years respectively. 
Now that's called good lawyering. For eight jurors, a hundred suspicions don't make a proof. There was, of course, much more than that, starting with the supposed harrowing abduction that Pamela had no interest in the police actually solving. She quit cooperating with the police investigation almost immediately after she was, quote-unquote, rescued. And the abductors, so the story was to imply, were, were possibly the same perpetrators who killed her husband. Zachary said he advised Pamela to accept the plea agreement because there was no admission of guilt, merely that two witnesses would testify to her guilt, and it freed her from, quote, the agony of another trial. From our standpoint, Zachary said, at worst, it would have been a hung jury. Who's to say they wouldn't have tried it again? At some point, compromises aren't unreasonable. A spokesman for John's parents said the remedy was, quote, not exactly what we had hoped for. On the other hand, he added, curiously, we don't find any fault with it. As for Smith, the crusader who fought the fight for the state and victim, quote, after interviewing that jury in Jacksonboro, we figured out they had severe credibility problems with the witnesses. When they read this, he was talking about the jury, perhaps they'll believe the testimony. Let's talk about that right quick. Yeah. This plea bargain. She pleaded no contest to conspiracy to commit murder. That was the same charge that Lucky Wright pleaded out to. and He got 15 years. Yep. She got a better deal, obviously. I think you're correct. And if she's kept her nose clean for three years, there would be no record that she was ever even involved with this, except for the record we're making here, that she was very much involved with it one way or the other. Yeah, she probably had, I would assume, probably had Kearney or Zachary, you know, expunge the initial arrest. So, yeah, there'd be no record of it once she successfully served that three-year probation. And what the financial incentive, what was that for her? Meaning, what, what did she get financially out of this deal? We don't know. We don't know that. Um, I don't. I don't know how the his will was one what it even said we don't even know that but how the how the how the estate was settled i don't know i mean i would think nothing right i mean they were married divorced remarried in short in a short time i mean they were married uh at least since 1975 divorced in 1980 and remarried a couple months later yeah right? yeah several months later john what do you make of this uh performance by the defense well i mean they obviously did a wonderful job um to be you know arrested and charged with murder and then to starting with capital murder starting with capital murder and then to, for it to end up in you know i guess uh i guess what was initially a mistrial because the judge claimed yeah. you know, that he didn't have the proper permission to change the venue and then a hung jury um you know i think the state at that point even though they could have retried her he was just worn out with it and and um she she got a great deal great offer i mean three years probation didn't have to go to jail presumably successfully served that probation got it expunged from her record and she only had to pay like 500 or a thousand dollars for this whole thing right well, she according to Lucky Wright, she was going to be out thirty five grand. Thirty five grand. Yeah, that that's a. I mean, that's a. T- <laughs> the murder for hire always intrigues me. I mean, what's the odds 
I mean, the odds of getting away with a murder are slim to none to begin with. Yeah. Right. And then you, you introduce, I mean, in essence, you introduce another witness or a co-conspirator. Several. Or several. I mean, it's just that many, many more people that are going to talk. And we, and we already know how smart those guys were. The fact that they, right. you know, went to oh. the wrong city. <laughs> they just really couldn't pull it off. Uh, I mean, now in, in their defense, they didn't have iPhones back then. Maybe they got confused with the whole, you know, highway system, the east and west directions. Anybody provide them a maps go? Yeah. Maybe, maybe a, a trip tick back in the day. That was a what? Trip tick. I've never heard of that. You've never heard of a trip tick? You go to AAA and my dad used to use these when I was a kid and we'd drive to Colorado and you could get this updated version, you know, of, of the map. They would show, reflect any road construction. And you basically, so you wouldn't have the big, you know, obtrusive yeah. map. You would, It was basically, oh. like, you could flip the pages as oh. you progress. So, yeah. Fancy. Oh, yeah. But, you know, these witnesses, speaking of these co-conspirators, alleged co-conspirators, they're the worst nightmare for a, pro- for a prosecutor, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> A defense's dream. Yes, right, yes, right. yes. Yeah, anytime your uh, people that are testifying on behalf of the state have negotiated plea deals, once their credibility comes into question, it, I mean, it becomes a field day. And, and I, I've had the privilege of seeing Jeff Kearney cross-examine witnesses for hours on the stand, and it, it, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing what he can what, – you know, what the, the web that he can weave and, and get people to – basically admit things that they didn't even, don't even know, realize they're, they did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, both those guys we mentioned have incredible, uh, reputations. Tom Zachary, God rest his soul has moved on to the other realm, but Jeff Kearney's still going at it strong. Still going strong. This is 40 years ago. Um, he said, these are the best in the city. If, if tell you what, if my tell were on the line, they'd be the first guy I'd call. And you, you mentioned you've seen him up close because you worked for him. I did. I did. I had the honor of uh, interning at his law firm. Let's see, that would have been the summer of 2002 after, no, so, sorry, summer of 2003 after my second year of law school. And then I worked for him for about a year after I graduated law school. So I, I had the opportunity and the privilege to see him, you know, try some cases, you know, firsthand. And it, it's just not only is he a brilliant man, but just you know, the way he, the way he talks to the jury, I mean, they literally, he has them hanging on every word and it's, I mean, it's one of those deals where if I had the script and, and memorized it verbatim and, and delivered the same argument, closing argument to, to a jury it wouldn't have near the effect. I mean, just the way he just got the gift. The gift of, of, of trying that case. He does. I think you're right. I mean, if, if I've got it on the line, that's probably who I'm calling, right? And and 40 years late, I mean, imagine now 40 years later, 40 years more experience. Oh, of yeah. other, I mean, he would have been a young young pup at 83. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, drives a guy like that? I mean, sticking in it for so long, just love of the law, the competition. I the think, go- yeah, I think all of it. I mean, you know, he he's a very competitive guy, you know, came to TCU to play football. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He, and then went to law school at Baylor and, um, I mean, he graduated, you know, ba- law school t- typically takes three years and, you know, he didn't have much money at the time. And I remember him telling me, I think he finished law school in like 27 months. He just went straight through. Holy cow. So obviously very focused, very motivated. And, 
you know, just uh, he's always the best dressed guy at the courthouse too. I tell you what, he he uh, he always, you know, look looks the part, and uh, just his demeanor and, and the you know the preparation. I mean, he obviously works his tail off, and and uh, you know he's been fortunate to obviously work with some great lawyers in his yeah. career, but. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he loves to tee it up and go to trial, and you know, he prepares like, you know, better than anyone I've ever seen do it. And just, you know, just the style, the style that he has, you know, he comes across. I think a lot of defense lawyers can can come across as, you know, slimy or you know, like, like kind of used car used car yeah, salesman yeah. sort of. And he he comes across as very, no offense to used car salesman. Yeah, no no offense to used car salesman. <sighs> Quite but, an honorable living. But he comes across as very genuine and sincere and, and and juries, you know, they gravitate toward him. And his, you know, obviously I think one of the reasons he's been so successful in his career is, you know, the respect he has from, from prosecutors on the other side and judges on the bench. I mean, yeah. I saw on several occasions where he was representing someone where you maybe, you know, the evidence wasn't all that great for, for our client, but because of the reputation that he had built up over the, the decades and, you know, the prosecutors were certainly will be more willing to make better offers to his clients just because of the, the fear of losing to him at trial. Is there, uh, you know, this, this case went to Jack County. Uh, what are, and then, of course, the judge recused himself from Parker County. Uh, that's one reason why the prosecution wants some help from the D, from the the locals DA, local DAs right in the Jack County sure because there is there are some pitfalls of prosecution and defense sure working a case in front of a judge they don't know exactly yeah and in front of you know citizens of that county that that you know the people that you know a county that they don't reside in they don't mm -hmm. live in um, so yeah I think you'll see that on the defense side too a lot of times you know when They'll try, you know, when I lived in Austin, when I was a prosecutor in Austin, there were times where, um, you know, they would, uh, you know, bring bring a, or cases that were tried in Fort Worth, they would bring a lawyer, you know, that was familiar with trying cases before that judge. The defense would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because you know how the other side thinks. You know how that judge is going to rule. So someone... You're clearly an attorney that's tried cases in front of that judge or, you know, a prosecutor that's tried cases against defense lawyer, defense lawyer that's familiar with the way the prosecutor thinks, you know, they're going to have an advantage. What prep time? This case, I mean, you know, there's obviously a number of players involved, if you will, but you, you kind of brought that up going back to Carney. He's well prepared as in summary, what you said, what kind of prep time on like, any any felony, you know, a, a, just a, I hate to say this, a run-of-the-mill murder, a run-of-the-mill felony. What kind? I mean, how much prep time is involved in that? Oh, I mean, hours and hours and hours. And obviously, you know, depending on how many witnesses involved, how many statements, uh, you know, depending on, you know, just how many people involved, that's obviously going to affect the prep time and how many witnesses you're going to have to prepare to cross-examine as, as a defense lawyer. But I mean, hours and hours. I and, wonder. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of it comes, you know, off the cuff. I mean, you obviously have to prepare ahead of time, but during the trial, you know, based on what a state's witness says on direct examination, you know, you got to be able to think of something on the spot because they might yeah. mention something that you didn't think they might say. 
And, you know, obviously your cross-examination questioning is going to, you know, follow kind of what they say on direct. I think when we look at one of the other elements of experience, Parker County then was like you said, a speck on the map. It wasn't like it is today. It's more of a, well, it is just a suburb of Fort Worth. There's Mm -hmm. no difference between, you know, Fort Worth and Parker County now. It's a sea of rooftops from here to there. So you look at the police experience, right? I don't think murders were abundant in Parker County in 1982. So you've got that element. Kind of reminds me of what's going on with this uh, this case in Idaho right now, mm-hmm. right? You've yep. got four people. Remind who were, me. T- tell me. Yeah, remind me of this case. Just a couple of weeks ago, the four there were four college students that was at Idaho State, or I, I don't remember the name of the university. Um, it was a small, it was a small rural community in Moscow, Moscow, yes. Idaho. Oh, okay. right. that's, that's Idaho State. I believe that yeah, is. Idaho four State. students were found murdered in a, a house off of campus, and they still, as far as I know, have not found a suspect, have not arrested wow. anyone. Okay, stabbed to death or throat slit or, or whatever. So anyway, to your point, a small, little, yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at it. Does that does the say you know? That same murder in Idaho, you bring it to Fort Worth or you bring it to Dallas or, you know, these big cities that are used to investigating murders. And they have the staff to do it. They have they have the staff to do it. I'll give you that. I mean, how, you know, I, I wonder what the difference is. And much like, like I said, you know, you've got a big dog in Kearney going up against a back then, not now, but back then a, a, a investigators that probably weren't used to uh investigating murders right i mean it is de- it it, it, yep. it had to have been like you take the analogy of nolan ryan throwing against like a 10 year old right i mean it's that off kilter yeah. i think that perhaps played a no, role no in question. some of it as well yeah, no questions i mean someone with that experience and that skill set you know going up against a small town prosecutor yeah i mean there's no question that you have an advantage and I also think that I'm pretty sure that Fort Worth assisted the Weatherford. I think it might have been Park. I think it might have been sheriff's deputies in the investigation because they were so overwhelmed by. Yeah, no, I I would believe that the you know collecting evidence and oh, analyzing yeah. it and, and the sheer magnitude of the crime and parties involved. Right, right. Yeah, I mean you gotta you gotta look at that. I mean who. Who was the victim? And the you know, I mean, it, this wasn't one a run of the mill guy. I mean, let's face it. Right. So, I don't know. Interesting to say the least. Jake, uh, tell our listeners where they can find us on the socials. You got us at Signal Fifty One Chronicles Facebook and Instagram, and on YouTube, Signal Fifty One Chronicles. It is important that they subscribe when they get on there. Yeah, absolutely. Go to YouTube and subscribe. It's free. Just hit subscribe. All you got to do is press the little thumbs up button. That's it. Well, that marks the ending of this episode of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Pamela Laughlin versus the state of Texas. It is uh, my hope and dream that this is the last time I ever think about her. Uh, To our special guests... Sean Furkey, our resident retainer. I mean, our resident attorney without the retainer. Let's discuss that retainer again. (laughs) I think it was a Freudian slip there. We thank you for your assistance and your insight. 
and we'll see you again sometime soon. Sounds good. Appreciate it, guys. All right, Jake, you and I, we'll see him. Bye. Later. Roxo Media House.